What you're getting uh, at the moment is a map of Israel and the tribes uh, during this particular time. You'll see why this may be helpful for you as we read through today's passage. Um, But we are also back in the book of Judges this morning, and it has been uh, six weeks uh, since we've been in the book of Judges, Uh, and that's quite a bit of time. Uh, If you think back to then, the NFL season hadn't started. Uh, The Razorbacks were coming off a fantastic 1-0 victory just down the road at War Memorial Stadium, and we won't talk about the Razorbacks anymore. Um, But I do want to take a moment to reacquaint ourselves with the book of Judges, because understanding the framework of the book of Judges is important for understanding each one of these stories as we go through it. And so the book of Judges is built around cycles. And these cycles consist of Israel doing wrong and evil in the sight of the Lord, meaning they violated the covenant that they had made with Yahweh, and they left to follow after other foreign gods and and, and worshiping of those idols. And because of this evil and because of the violations of the covenant uh, between Israel and the Lord, the Lord allows Israel to be conquered by a foreign nation. And during that time, they live in slavery and oppression to a foreign king. And after a period of time, Israel grows, grows weary of this oppression, and they cry out to God for help. Now, one of the things that's interesting is, as you read through this, I don't ever find any real repentance of Israel in the book of Judges. It just always says they cried out to the Lord for help. So maybe it's one of those things where they kind of hit rock bottom and like, man, things are really bad for us. They were pretty good when we were serving God, so let's cry out to God and see if something can happen. But there never really seems to be any repentance that does this. But God, out of his immense grace, out of his steadfast covenant love for his people, raises up a deliverer, raises up a judge that conquers their oppressor, and they live in peace for a period of time. And this cycle happens over and over again in the book of Judges. Now, six weeks ago, when we were in chapter four, it started the third cycle, the third one of these in the book of Judges. And when we looked at Judges four, I mentioned at that time that Judges four and Judges five, which we'll look at today, they went together and they both look at the same events. Um, Chapter four, a classic Hebrew narrative style, And chapter five is a classic Hebrew poetic style. Each one providing a little bit more insight when you put them together rather than taken alone as you look at the story separately. So it's a story of salvation in chapter four and then a song of salvation that's sung by Deborah and Barak in chapter five. And the only other event in the Old Testament that's recorded in this way is the Exodus from Egypt in Exodus 14 and 15. And there are many parallels between this and the exodus from Egypt. Now, chapter five, as I mentioned, is poetry. And you may look at this and think, this isn't like any poem I've read where the words are supposed to rhyme, like blue and you. Without getting into a Hebrew lesson longer than one sentence, Hebrew poetry at its simplest form relies on the repetition of related ideas, letters, words, or sounds. That is its simplest is what Hebrew poetry is. So it's not a rhyming type of poetry, even in the original language. But like English poetry, it does make use of words that are, that are more picturesque, more emotional. They draw something out of you. And because the words are more picturesque, there's a lot packed into these words in a smaller amount of space than it could be as if you were telling a story and drawing everything out. So most of you probably don't remember the sermon a week ago or two weeks ago 
you probably don't remember what happened six weeks ago. So I'm going to give a very brief recap of chapter four so that we can remember what happened before we read this passage. Because I think we need to have the idea before we get into this poetry. So Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of this time, a person named Jabin, who was the king of Canaan. And he had a general named Sisera. And Sisera was a very cruel man who had an army that consisted of 900 chariots of iron. And the people of Israel lived under this oppression for 20 years before they cried out to the Lord. Now, there was a woman that was a prophetess named Deborah. And she called for a man named Barak, and she asked him, why haven't you gone and done what God's asked you to do, which is to gather 10,000 men and gather at Mount Tabor and, 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 and fight and be ready to fight Sisera, where the Lord was going to draw out Sisera and his army, and the Lord would give Sisera into Barak's hand. And Barak said to Deborah, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. So Deborah agreed to go with him, but stated that because of this, the glory of defeating Sisera would not be Barak's but the glory of defeating Sisera would fall into the hand of a woman. So the battle unfolds, and for reasons we'll read about in chapter 5, the entire army of Sisera was conquered. His 900 chariots of iron were completely useless, but Sisera got away on foot and ran to the tents of someone he thought was friendly to his side. And that's where we meet this woman named Jael. And, he came and she persuaded him to come into his tent and he asked for water and she gave him milk and he laid down and she covered him up with a rug and all of these type of things and he fell asleep. Or in his sleep, she took a hammer and a tent peg and killed him with that. Now, Barak comes shortly thereafter and uh, Jael meets him out in front of the tent and says, come and I'll show you the man that you're looking for. And he found Sisera dead there. Now, the fighting continued until King Jabin was defeated, the Canaanites were defeated and Israel had taken back over the land. So with that background, I want us to turn our attention to Judges 5, and we'll be looking at the entirety of the chapter uh, today. Hear now the reading of God's word. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you marched out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled, and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned, and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way, the sound of musicians at the watering places. There they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, break out in a song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Obinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir marched down the commanders, and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. 
the princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar faithful to Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. The kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. March on, my soul, with might. Then loud beat the horse's hoofs with a galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Miraz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, a tent-dwelling woman, most blessed. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her right hand uh, to the tent peg. She sent her right hand to the workman's mallet, and she struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet, he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet, he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Out of the window she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man. Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera. Spoil of dyed materials embroidered. Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as a spoil. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. But your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us today. We thank you for that you are a God who never fails. We thank you that you are a God that is faithful to the covenant. I pray that we would see that today. And I pray that you would help us to understand the Holy Spirit would enlighten our eyes as we work through this passage today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this is a beautiful testament to God's saving work of his covenant people. However, this song does present some notoriously difficult problems in trying to understand it. Augustine, some of which you may have heard of, one of the greatest church fathers, and S has stated that this passage was too obscure to even comment on. There are some sections that are difficult to translate, and there are some time shifts within the song itself as others are encouraged to join in the song of Deborah and Barak. The overall scholarly view that has stood for the last 40 years is that based on the original Hebrew of, of time and meter, and won't get into all that stuff, this is most properly broken up into five stanzas. Five stanzas or, or five verses of this song. And I've borrowed that overall structure of five stanzas and modified it a bit to make the outline that you have there in, in your bulletin. The first stanza opens in verses one through three with a call to hear of Yahweh. A call to hear of of Yahweh. And it specifies who the singers are. It's Deborah and Barak. And it says on that day, and if you look back up to 423, on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And they make clear that, yes, the leaders did what they were supposed to do. 
and that there were also people that offered themselves willingly to the Lord as they invite all kings from throughout the land and the princes throughout the land to come and hear of the mighty works of their God, the only true God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And this is amplified in the next section in verses four through five, where they sing of the coming of the divine warrior, the coming of the divine warrior. Here it becomes clear that God fought this battle on behalf of his people. If you think back to Deborah's question of Barak in 4.14, she asked Barak, does not the Lord go before you? Or does not the Lord go in front of you? It pictures the trembling of the earth and the mountains quaking as the Lord came in from, from Mount Seir. And if you look on your map, if you look at the southeast portion of Israel, it'll be, I think it's in, in yellow on the map, uh, you'll find Edom. And it pictures the Lord coming from Edom, which forms the southeast portal of Israel, and he comes across the entire land of Israel, all the way up to the very northern section, the north central section, where the battle took place. It speaks of the heavens opening as great amounts of rain fell from the sky. And we'll see exactly what was the result of all this rain was in the fourth stanza. Now, what's significant about this, if you think back to even further back, uh, to Judges 2, uh, when we spoke on that, we've talked about that the God of the Canaanites was Baal. And he's a God who is pictured as riding on the clouds. And he brought the rain with him as he rode on the clouds. And even in a, uh, a stone cutting that's in the Louvre today, in one hand, he has a lightning bolt. And in the other hand, he has his hand raised with a club, which symbolizes thunder. So the, the Canaanites thought that that this mighty display of, of, of rain and thunderstorms and all this came from their God. But in this mighty display of, by the Lord, all of Canaan and all of Israel saw who truly controlled the rain, who truly controlled the elements of nature as he used it to fight for his people. And we all today can rest assured that as people that have been brought into the covenant, that Yahweh, our divine king, still fights for us. Verses six through eight in the first stanza tells us of the conditions of the land. The conditions of the land. And they were quite severe because of the oppression of the Canaanites. Now, it talks about the time of Shamgar. And he's a minor judge referred to, to in Judges 3.31 who defeated the Philistines that were in the southwestern portion of Israel with just an ox goad. So literally a cattle prod. He defeated all the Philistines with basically a farm tool. But the Canaanites lived in the northern area of Israel in cities that were well built up and well protected. And because of their chariots and, and, and warriors, they were able to disrupt the entire country of Israel. And those who lived in isolated villages, they affected them by shutting down major roadways. People had to keep to the back roads, which is a far less uh, favorable way to get around for, for communication and for commerce in that time. But God raised up an unexpected person in the middle of this dire situation. We're used to seeing God raising up a, a man in the situation. But God raised up a woman of faith by the name of Deborah, who she's described as a mother in Israel. Now, we're not told anything about her background or, or how she arose to prominence in Israel, other than that she was a prophetess, someone through whom God would speak, um, and the people recognized this. Now, she wasn't the first prophetess that we've seen in the Old Testament, and she wouldn't be the last prophetess that we would see in the Bible but she is the one spoken of in the highest terms. So she's a very significant person in Israel's history, and we should not downplay the legacy that she has in this story because of her gender. Verse eight reveals to us the root of the current problem, and the problem was apostasy. 
that Israel had chosen new gods and new idols to worship, which over time left them defenseless and without any way to protect itself. Perhaps the reason that Shamgar had to use a farm tool, a cattle prod, because there weren't any swords or shields available to him. And I think this can also be true in our lives. The more we give in to sin, the more we say yes to sin, the more we give in to the idols in our lives, the more defenseless we become when the enemy tries to attack us and lure us into sin. Now, the second stanza starts in verse 9 with the call to participate. The call to participate. But this isn't just a call to participate in battle. This is a call to participate in the song that Deborah is singing here at this time. It seems that Deborah is the one that's still singing here because of the way she referred to herself just a few verses earlier. And she says that her heart goes out to the people who offer themselves willingly to fight in this dire situation. And she blesses the Lord for them in their sacrifice. Now, I'm going to, again, avoid technical details here. But if your translation varies a bit from what I read in verses 10 and 11, that's okay. There's a word there in there that we don't know exactly what it means in Hebrew. So people choose a little bit different way to translate this. So I'm just going to paraphrase it to get to the main idea because all the translations carry the same idea. Those of you who are rich and those of you who are regular people, tell of it. Listen to what is being said where you meet, where people talk of the Lord's victorious works the victories of his people in Israel, with watering holes being where people would gather around in the city to talk of these things. Deborah is encouraging the people to tell of what God has done in this victory and to participate in this song with her. And that very last section that's set off in a lot of your Bibles in verse 11 seems to be what the people were telling and what they were singing at that time. Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. This is the highest point of this song in this chapter, as the chorus of the people then encourage more from Deborah and tell her to awake, awake, basically keep singing, keep going, tell us more, keep singing about the works of the Lord. And they talk to Barak, yes, take more captives. The enthusiasm of the chorus that is now joined in the song wants more as the people participate. If the situation was so bad in stanza one that village life had ceased and people weren't able to use the highways, they were having to stick to the back roads for fear of the Canaanites and the oppression that they were bringing on the land, then there's no excuse in not picking up and participating in the praise to Yahweh that's happening at this time. Verse 13 seems to be a single voice picking up where the chorus of the people left off at the end of verse 11, with a reference to those who had survived the years of oppression, who were marching down against the mighty of the land of Canaan. But those marching weren't just any survivors or remnant because of their own strength. They were the people of the Lord, the people that the Lord was blessing. Now, the exuberance of stanza two gives way to a darker, more somber tone in stanza three as we see the census of the tribes, the census of the tribes. And this is where your map will come in very handy as we go through these people, and you can see kind of where they're located in this. If you look... Um, in, in the top section of your map, uh, you'll see that there's an area marked out as Mount Tabor. And then, um, I should have saved a map for myself. Thank you. And if you look right, uh, Asher, Zebulun, and Issachar, the border right there, that's going to end up being the River Kishon that runs right below Green, 
I'm gonna call that purple and then red. That's gonna be where the river Kishon is. And Mount Tabor is right there in that red section of Issachar. So that's where the, the action is gonna take place uh, for this battle. And we're gonna have a kind of a roll call of the tribes. So we have a record of those who chose to participate in the battle and those who didn't. But we're gonna start with the positive news. Ephraim chose to participate. And this is somewhat expected as we read this because Deborah was from the tribe of Ephraim. Um, and they followed the tribe of Benjamin, which was its neighbor. Machir refers to some of the leaders of the western side of Manasseh. Now, Manasseh was a tribe that was on the west side of the Jordan and the east side of the Jordan. And the western side uh, on, that was on the Jordan, Manasseh, chose to participate in this battle. And you have Zebulun and Issachar that participated along with their captains and their leaders, and it said they did so with great excitement. With Reuben, we get the first tribe that didn't participate. And there's an interesting phrase repeated twice. There were great searchings of the heart, along with the question of, why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling of the flock? Essentially, our land has been under severe oppression for over 20 years by these Canaanites that are, that are trampling us and ruling over us. And you sit across on your side of the Jordan and perhaps relative safety, just attend to your sheep. Gilead that it mentions there is a region rather than a specific tribe. And it encompassed the tribe of Gab, Gad and then the eastern half of Manasseh that was on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Now, perhaps because these eastern tribes were in a more secure position because of their location, these tribes east of the Jordan had pledged to Moses they would fight for the whole of Israel if they needed to and because they were settling in a land that was more favorable for cattle and for livestock in Numbers 32. So those eastern tribes that chose not to participate in this battle, they had forsaken the vow that they had made for their own comfort, safety, and perhaps relative security to the other tribes. And this is the question I would have based on that. How many times does the Lord call us to do something? And we sit there and we ponder what we should do about it from comfort and safety as we tend to the sheeps in our lives, as we do things that are, are, are meaningful and good things to do, but it's not what God is calling us to do. So it's not the best thing. Now, Dan was on the central and west coast on the Mediterranean Sea, so it chose to, behind to, to stay with its ships and protect what was theirs rather than participate in the righteous cause of all of Israel. Asher, as well, stayed in the northeastern portion with its strategic ports. Zebulun and Naphtali were in the middle of the fight, and it says risking their lives to the point of death. So if you're counting, two tribes are not mentioned, Judah and Simeon, which are in the far southern, southern portion of Israel. So five and a half tribes chose to participate, and four and a half tribes chose not to participate, with Manasseh being the split tribe from the west and from the east. But God calls all of his people to participate and what he has called us to do. And as we just heard from the Repent and Be Loved series, we shouldn't ever let our comfort, our security, our desire for control to keep us from participating in the call of God. Now, the fourth stanza give us the, gives us the conflict details. We read that the battle took place by the waters of, the, uh, of Megiddo, which was the Kishon River, and again, right there under Asher, Zebulun, and Issachar. The rulers of Canaan, led by Sisera, and we know this from chapter four, had been tipped off to where Israel was gonna be on Mount Tabor. 
And so they decided to gather there thinking that this would be an open plain, a place where their chariots would have strategic advantage. But chapter four tells us that at the end of the battle that there was not a man left because there was a divine warrior that had fought for the Israelites. Verses 20 and 21 are significant. From the stars the heavens fought, from their courses they fought against Sisera, the torrent Kishon swept them away, the ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. And what this seems to me is that the Kishon River overflowed its banks, essentially creating a flash flood in that moment. The horses galloping, galloping, trying to get away, but to no avail as the water covered them up. Very reminiscent of what the Lord did in the Exodus and the Red Sea. Deborah and Barak, along with the army of Israel, were positioned on higher ground on Mount Tabor as instructed by the Lord. As they watched this happen, where in 4.15 it says, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army and before Barak. Just as God had flooded and destroyed the armies and the chariots of Egypt during the Red Sea during the Exodus, he did the same thing again. In this section, we have one final curse for failure participation that comes from the angel of the Lord. Now, nothing is known about Miraz today except for this single verse because of their willful non-participation in battle. The Lord called for them. He called for them to participate in the battle, even though the Lord didn't need them. And that same thing can be true for us. The Lord did not require their physical assistance in battle, but what he did require from them and what he requires from us is our commitment. He requires our loyalty and he requires our obedience to him. The fifth and final stanza shows us a contrast of mothers, a contrast of mothers. We read of Jael's motherly actions towards Sisera and bringing him in and, and giving him milk instead of water and, and, and taking care of him. Now, Jael remains a bit of a mystery. Through the words we read in this song, we're, we are meant to feel the graphic nature of what she did. Four different Hebrew words that sound alike and have similar meanings are used to describe what she did. So we're meant to feel the, the gruesomeness, the awfulness of this situation of what is happening to this evil man, Sisera. She struck, she crushed, she shattered, she pierced. We're meant to ponder that. But another thing that we're meant to ponder in verse 27 is the literal physical position that Sisera was in in relation to Jael between her feet as she died in that repetition. Now, one of the most humiliating ways for a man to die in battle in this time was to be killed by a woman. But there's a bit of a Hebrew innuendo at play in the words here, in the physical position of Sisera to Jael as she died. The tables were turned from the violent act that Sisera would have likely committed to her. We're never told of Jael's motives or loyalty, and across two dozen commentaries, they all debate multiple sides of this issue, of her deceit, of the way she murdered him, of all these things. But I do contend that I think we have to think of her in a positive light, even with the deceit and the gruesome death that's described. Because in the end, Scripture has the final word. And we are told, most blessed of women be jail. Now, very briefly, we turn and look at um, Sisera's actual mother. And it may seem to some that we're supposed to have pity for her, as it describes her looking out through the lattice and wondering about why her son is so long in, in, in coming back home from the battle, and where is he? But this section is loaded with irony. 
We as the readers and hearers know that Sisera is not returning from battle. We already know the faith that he has met. But we're also supposed to lose all empathy that we might have for a mother that lost her son as she takes comfort in his, in his delay from the wisest princesses that surround her and her own thinking as they assure her that, well, they're dividing up the spoils of war. And certainly there's a woman or two for each of them as well as garments that they're going to take and they're going to give you to, to be able to wear around your neck. And it uses some fairly graphic Hebrew terms in its translation there. So we lose empathy for Sisera's mother and the evil that she participates in. And then finally, we have the conclusion of the song, an invocation for all of the Lord's enemies to perish in the same way as Sisera. But for those who are friends of the Lord, those who participate with him in praise and in his purposes, that they would be blessed. And we end the cycle with the common phrase, the land had rest for 40 years. Now, given the story we had in chapter four and the song we have in chapter five, what are we supposed to take away from this cycle in the book of Judges? I think it comes down to three things. Number one, God is faithful to his covenant people. God is faithful to his covenant people. In spite of Israel's sin, in spite of no record of their repentance, just a cry of relief from oppression, the Lord responded to his covenant people out of his mercy and grace and his steadfast love, a love that was rooted in the covenant that he had made with them. All of us here, we being made part of the covenant of grace through the death of Christ, we can rest in that same faithfulness. That God's faithfulness does not depend on us. It doesn't depend on our efforts. It doesn't depend on our obedience to him, but rather in the fact that God cannot deny himself. He is faithful to us, his people, through his enduring, eternal, covenant, steadfast love. But second, God calls his people to be active participants. He calls us to be active participants in joining this song and praising him for who he is, for what we know about him, for the mighty works that, we is, we have, that he's done for us. We often make the mistake of thinking that, that worship is something that we come in here on Sunday morning and worship is what we do here. But with the people of God, every action that we do is an act of worship. With everything we do, with every thought we had, we're worshiping something or someone. We're either worshiping God, we're worshiping ourselves, we're worshiping something that has become an idol in our life. But second, he also calls us to be active participants in his purposes in this world. Our battles are not against flesh and blood. But he makes it clear that we do fight in a spiritual battle. In our own lives, we have a spiritual battle, but a spiritual battle in the world around us in which Christ calls us to be salt and light in the midst of this generation. And Christ summarized the entirety of the law in this, that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. And then third and finally, God will be victorious. There's an old story of, of, of someone being assigned to, to read the book of Revelation. I've heard this in different contexts, so I think it's a bit apocryphal. But, and then come back to someone with any questions uh, that they might have about a book that's notoriously difficult to understand. And the guy said, actually, it's quite simple. And, and the person asked, well, what do you mean by that? And the guy said, God wins. It's as simple as that. God wins. That's the entire message of the book of Revelation. 
So no matter how great the darkness around us, no matter what happens in society around us, God will be victorious. And we can rest assured that God is on his throne, that his purposes cannot be defeated. And no matter how hard the enemy may try to fight against it, the purposes of God, they may try to fight against God himself, they will ultimately lose because God wins. And we, as followers and the people of God, ultimately win as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us with an everlasting love. We thank you that your love never gives up and it never runs out. We thank you for the covenant in which we can rest in. I pray that we would live in that, and I pray that we would participate in the purposes in which you have for us in this world. In Jesus' name we pray.